Welcome and all to Fearless in Devotion, sponsored, of course, by the Fat Ball Barn Restaurant. Andy, what's your favourite uh, item on Fat Ball's menu? Um, uh, they don't do balls, do they? No, uh, still don't do balls, despite our intense lobbying. Okay, so if they're still not doing any sort of roast ball, um, I do like the burgers uh, and I like the chips because they come with loads of sauce and who doesn't like sauce? I love burgers and I love chips and I love sauce, so it's a it's a winner oh, for me. You're like Sid James, give us the laugh. Give us the laugh. <laughs> Is that anything like it? I don't know. Close enough. PG tip monkeys all over again. Amazing. <laughs> okay, um, right. South End nil nil. Um, a, a solid draw away from home. Tim was the sole fearless in devotion correspondent at the game. What were your thoughts? Uh, on reflection, the morning after, it was a, a point gained. It could have been a lot worse. We didn't play particularly well. Lacked a lot of fluency. Didn't really create a lot. One one shot on goal. And then Hayden's a weakish header in the second half. But yeah, that's about as good as it got, really. Um, just... Sort of light years away from from the the Dagenham game, um, but you know if you're not going to play well away in your travels, don't lose. So you know it's definitely a point earned. We're definitely the happier team because Southend put us under the cosh, especially late on, and had you know a certain Jake Hyde's goal chalked off. I think they said it's for offside, but if you look back, I, I don't know if it's been been lost in translation, but there's definitely a handball in the build up. Um, so yeah, these things have a way of of uh, evening themselves out over the course of the season. But yeah, pretty hard earned points um, in a not so spectacular performance. You've got to take a nil nil away from home. Tough place to go, haven't you, Andy? I look at the form guide. We've won the last five, uh, and we've drawn away at South End, which you know is a tough place to go. It's an old league ground. They're obviously going to raise their game for us. I don't think we're in bad form. Now, the only sort of question mark is, yes, some of those games we've won, we've been under the cosh a little bit, and maybe we still don't have that complete control in midfield. But, you know, we I think with the calibre of player we have, we will always pick off the lesser teams. Now, the likes of Dorking and things like that, you know, we've, we should have players who are competent enough to think they can go to a ground like that and win. But Southend is a different is a different proposition. You know, it's an old-fashioned league club. It's a big expectant crowd on their side as well. And these are full-time professional players. So, you know, it's not going to be as easy as everyone thinks. And I do actually think Southend were one of my dark horses for the playoffs. And so even though they're only, you know, latter half of the table, I still think with the manager they've got and the players they seem to be still signing, I think they're going to be a force this season and maybe we will look back in a couple of months and go that point at Roots Hall it is Roots Hall isn't it it is well done um, <laughs> will uh, will actually be a good point yes I think we both um, tipped them as our dark horses at the beginning of the season didn't we Andy uh, for this uh, this year South End uh, Liam a little bit of a concern that we can't quite match our home form with the away form I know teams tend to perform better at home but there's a bit of a gulf appearing now isn't there yeah, I was saying to someone um, in the week that I don't really tend to worry about us for home games, which is handy as I'm a home season ticket holder. So 
those uh, like the likes of last Tuesday evening played some absolutely beautiful football. But I would like to see us take that form a bit more into our home gate, uh, our away games. I'm not expecting it necessarily to be you know huge, expansive football. But I would just like to see us put teams to the sword a bit more. And it's not it's not a given. You know, we, you've got to beat these teams on um, on merit. But uh, I think I was mostly just glad that they didn't bring the big guns out in Callum Powell, though, to uh, take us down. Uh, can I just say Callum Powell actually does have big guns? Oh, yeah, he does. He's he's yeah, they're absolutely huge. So, he's you know, you're not too far away from the mic there. Not no. big enough to get him on the pitch, though. So, <laughs> Why do you? We mock. He scored a couple of decent goals. He scored a, put, put, didn't he put a couple past Chesterfield or put one past Chesterfield? Yeah. yeah, he did, but he still can't break down ten men, can he? So come on, Calton, get get back in the gym, get back in pure gym. Go on. <laughs> um, as well as the South End game, obviously we've also had the release of a further two Welcome to Wrexham episodes this week. Uh, a little bit different, these weren't they? Obviously, we had the the Wide World of Wales. What were people's impressions of uh, the most recent two episodes? It's probably been about six since we last did a podcast, isn't it? So um, we're trying to figure out well, what we, we were hoping. We were hoping that we would No, we've got a loyal following. People have noticed. We're getting inboxed by a couple of people going, where is it? What's happened? Have you had a family bereavement? Um, Windsor I... Davis has been, has been inboxing us. That wasn't a very good Windsor Davis impression, even if I tried it to be. I I thought it was all right. Um uh, that that American guy, I just I just find him very nauseating. It was like a very very long five minute brief history of Wales. It was great, and I like I like I like the whole the format of what they were doing, and it was good because even I learned some things from it. I just I just for whatever reason I just I was like yeah get get on with it. Uh, I don't know why. The rest of it I thought was very funny. It was just that particular moment I just found it grated on me a little bit for whatever reason. Um, but yeah, you know it's it's building nicely, especially the Maidenhead game that was. That was good because obviously we saw it at the time. Andy was there. I think you were you there, Reese. Can I remember if you were there or not? I um, was. I'm heavily yeah. featured in that in in that episode. Yeah, I appear heavily, for at least heavily. four frames. Wow. No, I I, uh, I had to do. You know that thing when you sort of like pausing and and then playing, pausing and playing, and then I found Reese and I yeah. saw the top of Sarah's head as well. You did, yeah. I actually, her face elbow. appears. Her face appears in another part. We we feature twice. Oh, well, I don't feature at all. So I know, when you sit right next to us. So, so let, let, let's, where, where are we on, on Welcome to Wrexham um, personal uh, feature points tally? I mean, me and Gilpin have had a bit of voice action. I've had my, my brick appear in it in one of the episodes. And I'm sure, well, I, the, you, could capture my orange, you could capture my orange jacket and stop put away end when we scored. That's about as good as it's got for me. And the end credits, which was a surprise. Liam, you are the lone tragedy here well what, what it is is they're just waiting for the the special episode for the dover game and when it hits five all they're going to zoom in on the man who instead of celebrating kicked the back of his seat in anger just because of what a shit show it had been so i think they're sort of building up to that slowly but surely is that the six five game that somebody on red passions suggested was a fix well, if you look at the Zabruda film, you will find that it was actually... You'll see Ryan Reynolds sliding in from nowhere, even though he wasn't in the box, and he just hands a cool few notes to them, and then, lo and behold, we score the winner. So that's a lot. If you just pause it, the exact frame, you'll see it. Disclaimer, it wasn't fixed. In all seriousness, can I say, I genuinely thought the last two episodes were the best. 
I might be, t- I seem to be quite alone in that. And a lot of people, maybe I was just in a really good mood and I watched them, but I just found them really quite funny. Um, and all, a lot of people, not necessarily football fans, certainly not Wrexham fans, have been saying to me how much they liked the Wales episode. So we've got to remember, obviously, all we want to see are 90 minute episodes of training sessions where we learn sort of what Jordan Davis' favorite sort of part of the pitch is. But actually, no one other than us really cares about that. And they want a laugh and they want sort of other different stuff. So it'll be quite interesting to see. I, I, it seems to be from online that, that a lot of people enjoyed that episode. And I thought the Maidenhead episode, the most recent one, was really good. That was a lot of footy in it. And I found it quite funny. I thought Maxine Star term was very good. The cookery segment was there. Uh, he was really good. She was an actual fair play. Well, moving on from the documentary, there was some more big news this week. Uh, and the league has bent over backwards for Ryan Reynolds. Andy, what uh, what can you tell us about this, this development? Uh, do we mean streaming or is there something shady in his past? I, we, don't, I don't know about. We do mean streaming. Um, yeah, okay. So let's sort of paint a picture of this. Um, Ryan is a businessman. He sees an opportunity. This is why he's been so vocal on this, because he knows that once that documentary hits in America, you're going to get a lot of people who want to watch games. They want to see everything live, don't they? That's that's the sort of the next sort of general sort of step. So he's a bit frustrated that they won't give international streaming rights. He, together with Sean Harvey, came and had a proposal where whatever they made would be shared through the league. And they thought, well, you know, that's surely going to help every club in that division. The Vanarana conference were a little slower to that and say they want to cut their own deal, which I can sort of understand. And I don't think they like being hurried, especially by someone with two, well, 20.2 million Twitter um, followers who tend to gag in on what he says. So, I think what they've come up with is a compromise that actually from zero, they are actually looking at it. Um, the key thing for us is it needs to happen soon because we have probably another few weeks of this documentary. I know it's, it exists on Disney and I know people will pick it up over the next couple of months, but this is a real, this is a real, real time to strike, isn't it? And I think if we can't get this, this up and running before the end of the first season, maybe we've lost out a little bit. Well, it's going to be by the second half of the season, isn't it? I believe that's what the uh, the statement said. So hopefully by January, we'll we'll be cooking on gas. Yeah, and, and there still will be a lot of people who have taken Wrexham as their second club. And will will it, what it will do is, when you don't have a documentary on, it, this will cement yeah. the place. Getting, but also, you know, getting to see the matches... See the people like Mullin who are featured heavily in the documentary and go, all right, he's just got a cracker there. I'm in. And I think that's what they're that's what they're after, isn't it? Yeah, but also I think it must be the other clubs must be in favour of this for the National League to be going forward with it, which suggests strongly to me that we're not really going to benefit massively financially from it. Is the pot going to be shared? I know we don't know the details yet, but I know that was a suggestion, wasn't it, that the pot would be shared evenly around the clubs. It's not Turkey's voting for Christmas. It isn't because, you know, there were, this does open a sort of box, but I think it's, you know, there were 17 people from Dagenham at, at Wrexham on Tuesday night. Are you telling me that a crowd at Dagenham, which is about two, two and a half hours, and you wouldn't get another couple of hundred extra? Okay, yeah, that would be going into Wrexham's coffers, but if you all shared it out equally... Yeah. And you know, that's, that's what I think. It's a no-brainer, isn't it? It's a no-brainer. Come yeah. on. 
Well, that's what must be happening, I think, because otherwise, why would other clubs vote for it? Because it just means the Wrexham make loads more money. So, I uh, it'll, it'll be interesting to see how that how that works out and how it how it works. Um, but onwards uh, to our next interview. We're finally back with a ex player slash manager interview, and it's we apologise for the significant delay in bringing you this interview. Um, and this will be a two parter because it was such a long chat. Um, very, very, very interesting. Loads of interesting details we're going to bring you over the next couple of weeks. And it is, of course, with our former midfield dynamo and manager of uh, the season before last, Dean Keats. Very seldom does a player arrive past the age of 30 with no prior connections to the club, then go on to become part of Wrexham FC fabric. But then not everyone is this fella. Our greatest non-league captain and a good shout for the most consistent player we've ever had at this level. He played with a broken collarbone. He led us to our first ever Wembley victory and took us there two more times after that, as well as skippering aside to 98 points. It didn't stop there. As a manager, he reorganised and saved us from relegation not once, but twice, both times on limited resources. The second spell had added pressure on and off the field. And while some questioned the style of play, no one could ever say he didn't give his all for us. Welcome to the pod, Dean Scott Keats. Not too bad, thank you. Thanks for having me. No probs. As I said earlier, really looking forward to this one. Been trying to get hold of you for a while. Dean, there's so much to sort of get through. So let's sort of go through the first spell. So you took over in 2016, the club were 15th in the league. Uh, it was a Gary Mills side. Now we've all sort of, we've had Gary on and, you know, the first the first season that Gary Gary took over, the football he was playing up to a point was absolutely brilliant. It, it all went wrong in the second season. We couldn't really work out the signings. How much of a stake was that squad in when you took over? Um. It was a mess, if I'm honest. Look, and this is me not knocking someone else, and I'm not. I'm not about. I'm. I'm speaking honestly, honestly, and give you an honest answer to your question. So it's not a shot at anybody um, on any question that you ask me the night going forward. Um, it was, it was a, it was a poor squad, and I mean I was still connected with the club um, under his tender, uh, being a manager. So I was off uh, coaching the part of Glenbrook. Lindor University squad that they had, the feeder squad. And so that first year, the exciting football, you could see why it would be. You had good players and you had like Lee Fells, football player, wants to get on the ball. Don Vols gets on the ball, makes things happen. And then the second year, you started like, you looked at the recruitment. <clears throat> Some of those names I saw added in the pre-season. You're like, never heard of that name. Never heard of that name. And, you, you, and this is not disrespectful to players, but you understand that one or two might come from lower down and you think, right, okay, this might be one that they've seen, smooth the edges off, <clears throat> might become that polished diamond. But it was just like a, a mass influx of them. And then, obviously, the season started, didn't go, go to plan uh, as what the expectations are with the club. And, and obviously, what happened, happened. And then getting to be involved with that squad, for me, there was some of the players what was nowhere near the calibre that, that should be um, in the change room at Wrexham Football, Wrexham Football Club. 
I mean, we seem to hit form just after Christmas. Was there one player you brought in who sort of changed it a little bit for you? Um, Mentality-wise, you bring the likes of uh, JJ and James Jennings, um, Russ Penn, the right kind of players, right pros, um, and cross paths with them, playing, played against them. Um, so you learn about them from playing, playing against them, and then you, you do your dig in. So a lot of people who've worked with them, and on the other hand, really high praise for them. And they were the right kind of people that you need to change with, proper pros who are going to go in there, lead by example, uh, have high standards, and make players adhere to their standards. And if players have way for, fallen short, they'll they either bring them up to, the, they either rise to the player's standard or they fall by the wayside. And a lot of players fall by the wayside. But mm. I think both times when it got to that January point, when I got to get my own players in there, my own recruitment, there was a turn and a rise in, uh, in the performances. Well, definitely the points tally. Performance-wise, when you're down there, it's, it's not about the performance, but it's about getting the points and putting the club in, the, in a better position. Yeah, and sort of the backroom team you sort of assembled there. Did you always want Andy Davis in that role? Yeah, um, it was a strange one because I I hadn't worked with Andy. I knew Andy uh, from my playing days. I had a couple of sessions with Andy and Joey. So previously yeah. mentioned the Robin Ryan one. And uh, so yeah, I knew how good of a coach Andy was. Um, so yeah, so Andy was, when I, when I took, first took over with Joey, and Joey got the first game and then it was a case on the Monday morning. Joey had a chat with me and he said, look, my days of doing this have been and gone. You're the future of the football club. You're the right man to take the football club forward. He went, I fully, fully believe in you. Um, so he just said, look, I'll assist. Let's get some get some wins, get some points on the board, set it all down, get you the job. Obviously, we, Andy stayed alongside it. And then when it was a case when I got it permanently, it was just a game by to the end of the season, making, making savings on the budget, um, cutting costs and getting the club as quick as safely as, as we could. And then at the end of the season, I, I added Darlow back into the squad. And Carl, somebody I hold in the highest team. Um, just purely the fact he's coaching, the level of coaching I've been at. And also, from being a coach educator, it's also somebody who's asked you questions and challenges you. So it wasn't a case of having yes-men around me, both Andy and Darlow, questioning me on, on why, what was I doing that for, what was my thoughts in it, what, what was my thoughts behind it. So I, did, I didn't want people around me who were just going to, gonna, gonna oh, nodding dogs, to say. Um, so they questioned me on that. But what the both had was a lot more experience in coaching than me. I'd done my bad, started doing my badges. I'd had a year or two with the uh, university team, as I said. But I hadn't done it day in, day out, prepping the team, ready towards the, the end of the weekend, for, uh, sorry, the end of the week for game day, bringing a pre-season together. So they'd all had that experience. I had had the, the football knowledge of being able to know what a player wants and where, where the player wants to be, how he wants to be treated. So it was a case of putting the right people in place behind my support network and uh, building something together. You sort of uh, you sort of mentioned it earlier. I mean, you know, you have to balance a budget. And once one thing that fans couldn't really get their head around at the time was the 30-game contract. So there was a few, yeah, there was a few players. I think Rooney, I think Martin Riley. There might have been a few who a got few, to the there was like there was eighty percent of the squad. Wow, right. I mean that's nuts. So just to if for anyone who doesn't know, um, if a certain player played thirty games in the season, they automatically got their contact contract renewed. So it got to a stage where you were you were you'd taken over, you were sort of fighting against relegation. You probably moved us away from it by that point. But it came to the fact that a lot of players 
weren't starting for you, weren't in the squad. And I don't think fans could really understand why. But is that something that you knew you needed to deal with quite early on? Yeah, because I needed to put, um, when I say myself, I mean myself, the club, in control of the contract situation. Because it's okay. I'm a believer in a squad should be around about 22, 22 people. And it should be rolling. So you should have... 11 in contract, 11 out of contract, 11 players out of contract, if six or if all 11 performing, you renew the contract. But that should be on a year by year rolling thing so that 11's in, 11's out, 11's in, etc. down the line. And it was just everybody was up, either up at the end of the season or they played the games and everybody's still going to be in contract. And if just because what's happened the previous season, there's no guarantees going to happen next season, we could see the squad was nowhere near good enough for football club to challenge with. So if Contract started activating left, right, and centre. I just I'd been left with not much come the end of the season in, in a new fresh budget part because performances had been down. Fans had been like, "Do I really want to renew after the shit we had to watch last season?" And then the football club under the pre- under the then ownership was the potties. What the potties? It's what season tickets is a little bit. I can get on sponsorship or corporate etc. So that's not being invested in from my side then you go, you're going with next to nothing the following season and then you're struggling then to attract players. You are struggling to attract players to, to the level and to the football club. Yeah. I mean, one player we had on a couple of weeks ago who was quite quite annoyed by the situation was Martin Riley. Um, he was quite he was quite vocal about it, really. He, he sort of said you wouldn't give him a straight answer about if, he'd had a, if he was getting a new deal. Um Sort of took it badly. I, I mean, just just to underline, I don't think he feel he, he's any ill feeling towards you. I think he sort of understands it now. But back then, he's he said it was quite hard to take. I mean, I, I mean, what's your sort of view on that? Was it was it a case with like the likes of Martin who you'd worked with before? Was it quite hard to divorce yourself from from you know being in the dressing room with him to being his boss? Look, I don't know what context he's said, how he said it or whatever. I'm not going to be somebody who comes on and I've had private confidential chats with players, etc. I'm not going to come out and air things. I did say to Martin that I'd like to keep him if he could. Um, his last game would have been on the last game of the season. That would have been his 30th game. We were safe. I couldn't let it activate. Um, he might have took that personal. Me taking him, I can't remember the last game, was it easily? That season, yeah, the way so, yeah. so he might have took that a little bit personal. Me not having a conversation with before regarding it, but I couldn't let it activate because he was one of the higher earners. And if you activate, it's it doesn't activate, and then the club turns around and says we can offer you this and pay for it. You can't. It has to be on more terms than you already on. That's the way it's stated. So, yeah, look, hindsight, maybe I could have pulled him, had a conversation with that. But then if you pull somebody leading up to a game and say, these are my reasons why I can't play, blah, blah, blah. And then the person I'm going to play instead of him, Paul gets injured in the wall, etc. like that. Then that person then ain't really going to go in and think, well, you know what, last game of the season, I wasn't going to play because of these reasons. So, no, I did actually say to him, look, I'd like to find you if I could. As it stands, the budget, what I knew it was, was nowhere, I could pay nowhere near where he was on. So I gave a ballpark figure, and he wasn't having that ballpark, like, ballpark figure. And... And that's how it was left uh, from from then on. And, yeah, look, um, the budget, what, as I've previously stated, the budget is what the budget is. So I kind of knew what the, the budget was. Um, 
they said this is what we're looking at. So it wasn't going to go up loads. And then obviously, obviously the uh, build the budget came into effect. And then that obviously topped me up massively. You know, gave a fine chance. And look, things moved on from that. Um, other options became available and things evolve. And later on down the line, it, ultimately I, I was able to add money back and Sean Pearson. So look, there's no ill feeling towards Riles on that. Um, not that you'll ever know this. He ended up at Halifax because of me. Um, Billy Eve, somebody who I got on really well with, uh, he called me about another player that I'd released. And I, we got chatting and uh, he just asked any centre half for who was available. And I was the one who mentioned Riles to him. So it's nothing personal. Never has. I've never dealt with anybody, took anything personal off the player or dealt with anybody personally thought, you know what, I'll be personal with you. I got on really well with Riles. Played, played with him. Good lad in the changing room. And I managed him. There's no issue for me whatsoever. I just had to deal with what's in front of me. And if I dealt a bit wrong and he didn't like it, maybe something we could have just discussed about previously. As time's gone by, that he didn't have to get to uh, him to have him air, air his grievances on a, on a podcast. But no, look, hmm. the long and the short of it was um, I did say I'd look at trying to keep him, but I couldn't give him a definite answer because I couldn't offer him anywhere while he was on. And it would have been around his ballpark figure, but he had no interest in that ballpark figure. And I know he went to Halifax on decent money. I know you mentioned Dean, you mentioned Sean Pearson there and the, and, and the likes. Just take us take us through that the, ahead of that that second season because you revamped what you know, we've already stated was a very poor squad. So to going from having the likes of Naughty Naughty etc cetera, etc cetera, and having having Sean Pearson, Kevin Roberts, James Jennings coming in, um, it was it was chalk and cheese for us. When, when Naughty, can I just stop you on that? Sorry. Him. Um, Naughty, <laughs> Naughty wasn't a bad lad. Naughty wasn't a bad pro. Naughty, he wasn't he was Naughty. And uh, look, he, he trained really well. He trained really well. Um, sometimes things just happen for players at football clubs. He could have gone somewhere else and hit the road running and done really well for himself. But when I took over, he just uh, the bits I'd have seen leading up to when I got the job, and obviously Andy and Joey being there constantly and seeing the games all the time home games because that was part of their job with the, with the youth team and in the academy. I had to form quick opinions just off people and also their opinions. I trusted their opinions, valued their opinions. And then I had a short space of time to take it in on training and watch the games back, back uh, the previous games before I got in there. So that's what happens with most managers when they take over at a football club. So yeah, it, no, she wasn't a bad, a bad person, a bad lad or a bad, to say a bad player, it just wasn't right for him to be at that football club. And so, is he goody goody? Can we rename him now? <laughs> <laughs> let's say, let's, let's, yeah. say let's just say average average. <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't specifically digging it out. I could have picked any. No, no, I know he wasn't. But it's yeah. just for me, sometimes these things people watch them and take what they want from it. And I don't want people just be like players, ex players, just be lambasted with something because it wasn't just about one. He just collected me as a group. He wasn't good enough to be representing Wrexham Football Club. When you brought in Sean, Sean Pearson, um, that that really give definitely give fans a, a spring and a step because we thought that's that's the sort of quality signing we've not seen for a while. It certainly, didn't, it felt it had been some some time since we were able to to attract a player of that caliber to the club. Um, so just take us a little bit through 
your your kind of recruitment process, the thought that goes into it? Because I'm always curious, like when one season ends and before that next one starts, I imagine it's you, you allow yourself a little bit of time and then it's straight back into it, is it? Or is there never you start, a moment? Look, you, you start the previous season. You have an idea of what you're keeping. Um, you know 100% on, on, on a lot of players. You'll have obviously at the tail end of the season goals with them from your own squad. But you you were out watching and you're recruiting. Look, if your argument's sake, we if I'd have seen it through um, that first season without leaving, my eye would have been on League Two players. A, if we'd got promoted, and B, if we'd end up staying in doing the second season in the National League, I'd oh, fancy myself to be able to talk a few players down out of League Two, like I was able to previously. Um, recruitment, well, yeah, the recruitment doesn't stop. You, you're on it constantly. That's the biggest thing. And not just in football, in any business, any walk of life, recruitment's key to anything because you get the right staff in and you can manage them uh, in the right way, guide them in the right way and, you know, what help them and develop them. And you, you people enjoy working for you and, and everybody progresses and goes in the right direction. But Sean was one that it took a long time, it took a lot of chipping away at. I went after three that season, centre-backs, and I only wanted to play with two. And I almost ended up with all three. And I thought to myself, shit, if I get all three of them, I'm going to have to play three at the back. Because I'd had the, I believed I had the two best centre-backs in the, in the National League anyway, without this other one. But he was in there. If you said to me the best three, national centre, three, three best centre-backs in the National League, it's, I'd, I'd give you these three players. And I almost, at one point, I thought, I've got all three. And I was thinking to myself, do I... Do I actually talk one out of it and say maybe I've changed my mind? And I thought, no, if I get all three, and all Sean was a leader, vocal, everything. The other lad, exactly the same. Manny just Manny Rolls Royce goes about his business. It's not a show take. Just he standards are the way he plays. So I just thought to myself, if I got the other one as well, I was like, I've got to go three at the back. Um, but. At the end of the day, I didn't, and he'd end up showing the money, and it was no standing pairing. Well, was there any sort of scouting network around the club at that time? Because there was never, there was never an obvious visible one that we could say, you know, well, we, we sent this out of scout to that, or there was it just a very no. There was was it done between you guys? There was, there was nothing. It was done when I inherited it. There was no um, analysis, watching the opposition, no feedback to the players, no reflection on anything. Uh, there's no one out there scouting, watching people. Just you get agents all the time throwing names to you. You get contacts speaking to you, etc. But there's not much in place. And as I said previously, the the budget is the budget. So if you can spare some out there to take somebody on to do it, it makes life easier. Or do you just load it all into the first team and you just think, no, well, we've got to push on. We've got to get promoted. As soon as you get promoted, you get a pot of gold, getting promoted, and you, you can do what you want to do with a football club. Um, my two times at the club before there was a little bit of cash around because there was more in attendances the first time it kind of, it plateaued into build the budget gave us a lift then from when I left and came back the budget then in between was the biggest that the club had ever gone with because obviously Danny Ward had been sold that was our other t- golden ticket to say the Willy Wonka ticket with Wardy or doing well in the FA Cup and ended up at Old Trafford and getting nearly a million pounds kick back on the back of that so 
I didn't get the chance to be able to put things in place that you want. You just you literally are spinning plates and you're trying to keep this cost down as much as you can just because you need to get the best players available to you within your budget on the football pitch to try and take the football club forward. So you moulded a, a competitive squad at this point and season goes as the season goes on, we're handily placed, we're looking looking on course for the playoffs. And let's get the first elephant out of the room. Nine games left and your boyhood club come knocking. Um, I mean, I, I know you've gone on record about a, a, lot, a lot of stuff about it and I'm aware, that I think you can correct this if I'm wrong, I know Dixie McNeil was part of, 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 of the whole recruitment thing at the time. He said that Walsall had come in no less than three times to, to, to get you as their manager and then they were turned down three times. And then I think you were quoted as saying that um, uh, your head and your heart basically was ruled over your gut instinct. So just take us a bit around how that came about and, and, and if that was correct, the three knockbacks before finally it was like, you know what, if I, if I don't get the chance now, maybe I never will. Um, I mean, the first I heard of it, I had the phone call. I was on the way back up from um, Dragon's Park down south. I'd been on the on the A licence that weekend. Um, so... I was on the way back up. Uh, Spencer gave me a ring, just to touch base, blah, blah, blah. And he, he just came and said, look, we've had an, an approach. And I kind of laughed it off because um, I knew there was a buyer clause in my contract. And they don't buy anybody. They don't, do not buy anybody under that ownership then. And so I just said, look, nothing will happen, happen about it, blah, blah, blah. And didn't hear nothing for a couple of days. And that just got me my job. Thought nothing of it. Uh, then, if I'm right, it was maybe the Wednesday night or the Thursday night, he gave me a call back and said that they're interested in the last regarding the bio clause. And I was still very, look, I don't envisage it happening, if I'm honest. And then he called back a couple of hours later and said that they've activated the clause. And so then I was taken aback by it. And I said, right, okay. Um, I just said I want the night to think about it, about everything. Take I can't give an answer there now down the phone because it was just I was taken aback by it. So I wouldn't say I slept on it because I didn't sleep. <laughs> and uh, so yeah, it was a long night, to and throwing, to and throwing. And I mean, as I've said previously, and I mean, no, no respect to I'll say Rochdale. I can say if it had been Rochdale, I'd have said no then. then. But because it was Warsaw and it was my hometown club, but suddenly the stands, etc. as a kid, all that side of the fan does, representing them, captain them, won titles with them. It was that, that was the big hook. And so, yeah, I, I ended up speaking to Spencer, I think it was about six o'clock on the, the following morning. I think it was Thursday morning. And I said to Spencer, I thought about it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to take it. I said, but these are my conditions. I said, I want my staff all to have new contracts. Um, Andy was on a dual contract, which was still run from um, being the academy manager, etc. cetera. Your contract hadn't changed. I wanted Darlow to have uh, a slight pay rise because he wasn't on next to nothing, but he was only doing it on a, a part-time basis. And some things more concrete for uh, Mike Oaks. Uh, I had Nick Barnett in doing sports and exercise science. He was doing it free of charge from the beginning of the season. There's a few things I wanted in place for, for Nick. 
um, the physio then time Phil I said I want everybody to have new contracts we can do really well the tendency is up so I know the tendency is up this is to figure out I have to hit the break even I know they're all up so I believe everybody can get a fair reward and I said and then also when they're all done I'll get mine sorted and he was like right fine uh, I spoke to a few people through the night um, sort of advice and then I, somebody came back to me that morning and it's somebody who, who knows Wrexham really well as well and he just said, you, you owe it to yourself. He said, you owe it to yourself to go and listen to what they've got to say. He said, we are in a job that ultimately you lose four or five games, you get the sack. You get the sack. He said, so things might be rosy at the minute. He said, but you're going to lose a few games. And he went, especially under the model that you're under. He said, because it's the people that you deal with on the day-to-day and you represent the, um, the board they represent the fans. He said, so there's not, so if the fans are not happy, it's going to feed through and eventually there has to be a head on the block. When you're working for one direct ownership, direct chairman, he can be a buffer. He could tech, he could turn and say, no, he's my man. I brought him in. He's got to the end of the season. He's got X amount of games. I believe in him. He said, so you've also got to be aware of that. He said, so you owe it to yourself and what you've done in a short space of time to go and hear them out. And so that kind of took me aback. So then, I was true to my word, what I said to Spencer, I called um, what, uh, Dan Mould down at Warsaw. It was a Thursday morning because we were off, so I, knew, I can remember that now. And I just said, look, I appreciate everything, thanks for the offer, but it's just not for me. And he's like, right, okay, that's fine. Um, we want you, yeah, we're desperate for you. He said, he said, you know what the chairman's like, he won't pay for anybody, but he's put the money up to, to bring you back. And I was like, no, I said, look, I appreciate it, but I'm, I'm not the person... For you at the football club, I said, I'm just starting something now. Uh, I'm enjoying it, blah, blah, blah. And he just said, look, come and have a coffee, meet us, uh, him and another one of the directors. And then at the end of it, if you still feel the same, we'll shake hands, wish you each other the best and go our separate ways. And he just finished with, this might be the only chance that you ever get to come back and be the manager. And, that, and I thought, right, it is literally, could be now or never. So then... I said, right, give me half an hour. So I took the kids to school, uh, called him back. I said, right, I'll meet you. Called Spencer. I said, look, I'm going to have a meeting with Spencer. As a professional he is, and what from his day job, went into that mode of protecting the football club, which I fully expected of him. And he's like, right, everything gets done properly. And I was like, yeah, no worries. When I sp- obviously then went to meet Warsaw down in Stoke, just in between us in a hotel. Had a conversation for a couple of hours, and the project that was put to me that day and sold to me, and the mandate what was to go in and go and do it. That's what appealed to me. It was like, come back, it needs ripping up, it needs rebuilding. What you've done at Rex in a short space of time, we have got exactly the same thing that needs doing here. Because the reason I turned it down because they had a lot, a lot of young players, uh, they had a development squad, they want to get young players in. I said, look, I'm not working with young players. I said, I've recruited. 26, 27-year-olds, 28-year-olds. I said, I've got a few young lads that I work with. I said, but I'm probably not your man on that side. And they went, no, that model, it's got us where we are so far. We had a great time under Dean Smith with it. And now it's completely changed. And we need a change. We need fresh impetus. We need the fresh guidance. We need somebody to come in and rip it up and rebuild it. So that was the mandate that was given, the blueprint. This is all yours, what to go and do. Uh, so that was the reason I went and 
to say what one thing was said and another thing what was available when I put pen to paper was that's what it was. I walked into an absolute mess and it was ten times worse than mess and I, I had a rest. Completely missold. Sorry? Completely missold, was it? Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's me not knocking um Dan, because it dealt me well with Dan, also professional at the football club. It was the contract situation was very similar to the Wrexham one, but it was all rolling over. I had 18 players still in contract. Uh, I was told that the budget would be more money made available by the chairman for the budget. There wasn't. It was the same budget was that season. Uh, the previous season, so the 18 players took up 80% of the contract. I had six players out of contract. Um, all six had to be released to me to try and bring players in. And <clears throat> obviously then, bring in, the only players I could bring in was players from uh, the National League. Brought Cookie in, do wonders for me, got 17 goals. Uh, Would have gone and got more. And obviously got Josh Ginelli in. Brought Gino in, obviously managed against him, do wonders for me, I sold him in the January for six figures. So it was a little bit of, I don't know, it was not missold to an extent it was. Um, The goalpost moved. The goalpost moved. And (laughs) when I said the heart... Ruling the head, uh, heart ruling the head, and then not going my gut. From early on when I walked in there, it was hard because I walked in on my own. Um, the staff was already in place, so straight away, everybody's on their toes. What's he doing? I walk in a room. It was like that one you walk in. You know, like you say on the films, you walk in a bar and everyone just stops, looks at you. <laughs> it was like that. Anywhere I walked, it was like that. So the only person I knew at the time was the physio, because he was the second physio from when I played there, and then the kit man, who was then the first physio, the physio from when I started as 16-year-old. So they were the only two people I knew. So I ended up having conversations with the, the old kit man more than anybody because I had no relationship with everybody. The assistant manager, it was still on the previous, the assistant manager's coach. Good fella, got to know him really well, good, good man. Um, played against him numerous times, but didn't know him personally, hadn't played with him, all that kind of thing. So there was no relationship for me all the time. So every you're completely on guard because everybody's trying to second guess your thoughts. So that was probably one of the worst times I've had in football is going into something like that. I mean, I spoke about it on the Robin Ryan one, but when a player comes to a new football club and you try to work people out, the manager going in, it, it's totally the same, especially if you're going on your own. And it, it is it is bad. And I got, Sam called me after he left Rex and went to Shrewsbury and he asked, we spoke about the same thing. Uh, and he mentioned it, he said, how do you deal with it? I said, you can't. I said, you just got to get used to it. I said, it's hard. I said, because everybody's there trying to work out what's going on in your head. Because he'd done the same thing at first. He went on his own, didn't he? Yeah. He said, so I said, everybody's trying to work everything out, out your head and what you do, what your thought process is. Do you fa- does he fancy me? Does he want me? Or is he going to get rid of me? I said, everybody's trying to work out what you're thinking. I said, it's most uncomfortable that you'll feel. I said, but unfortunately, it is what it is. It's what we buy into and what we, what, what we do. When you we, um when you when you left, two two camps formed amongst Wrexham fans. Um, there was very much of well, you can understand why he's gone. Boyhood club, who blame him? You do exactly the same in, in in his position. And then you had the other camp. I can't believe it. We're in a good good position. And I think it was it was it was made worse by the fact we we didn't get we didn't miss out in the playoffs, and that gave a lot of fans ammunition to go. If he'd have stayed, who had done it? Which is kudos to you and what you were doing at the time. But I think it, it sort of underpinned that that 
that maybe justifiable anger they felt because they missed out and they felt you walking was the result of that. Can you kind of, do you feel some of that anger was justified and can you understand why why some fans were, were so furious with you leaving at the time? Yeah, of course I understand it's justified. Anger, look, there's anger and it's going beyond anger. Some of the personal abuse I had through social media, messages. Really? Yeah. So, look, I, I get people's passion for a football club and love for it and stuff like that. But when people are uh, messaging you, even when I came back, I was still like, still, some of them were still the same people. They took it that personal. It was almost like I'd done something to them personally. And look, it was it was business. But what I, what I can say is, look, from my first point under Exeter as being the manager, from what I earned from when I took over to the day I, I left to go to Warsaw, what Warsaw paid for me, was actually more than I earned. So I felt Rex has done all right out of it, if money's a lot. <laughs> and um, so, no, I get that. I, I get people's hanging. I, I, look, I know what the passion is with the fans after the football club. And that's the, the special thing about people from Rex and made the feel about the club. And look, as you said, it's where well, everyone I just spoke about just, but then you also put in the position, whatever you do in your day job, if someone comes to you and says, right, there's progression for you. You're going to go from being, I don't know, working on the shop floor to being the manager. It's going to be, obviously, then you're going to go up a few levels. Obviously, financially, it's going to be better rewarded for you. There's not many people who turn opportunities down. And I knew what I was doing. I can't regret the decision because I'm one of those. You make a decision in the time, you have to stick and go through it. So I don't look back and say, you know what, I regret the decision at that right time. I changed my mind. It was back and two, back and two. I said no. Then thought about everything, spoke with people, and then I had the meeting, and I went with it. And I can't change it, um, but I understand. I do understand the anger towards it with what happened at the tail end of the season. And if I'm honest, when I left, <clears throat> speaking to the players and me, what this Andy was having to stay to see it through, I was more disappointed in the group of players I put together. That's even though I was not their manager, I was more disappointed in them. That's the first time I've been really disappointed in them that they didn't get across the line to at least get the playoffs. Because I thought there was more than enough in the changing room. They were been drilled enough to know what we were about. Nothing changed. Nothing changed under Andy and Darlo, but it was professional enough. Why they just fell apart, I just, I just don't get that. I, I struggled for that. It wasn't just about saying, yeah, I've gone. I've, I've leave. I've put nothing in place with them. put the right personnel in that changing room. The right, again, the right guidance, the right instructions from day dot when they came back in pre-season, we drilled enough into it. I still believe there was enough there for it to still steep through. And you look, the playoffs are the lottery. You end up with, I expect them to be in the lottery draw and I was, surprised, I was more surprised about the fact that they didn't and how they tapered off. And look, I'm not one for being big-headed or anything like that. I just thought the group was strong enough without me to, to, to even carry on. And look, it's history and what's happened. Before I bring, um, go on, Andy. I, I was just going to say about that, actually. I mean, Andy Davis got a really tough time after taking over. I mean, I was going to say, is there anything he could have done differently? And did he sort of come to you for advice? I still spoke to him. I still spoke to him all the time. I still spoke, spoke with Darlow. I still spoke with some of the players. Um, look, sometimes things don't go your way. Um, Andy got abuse. And Darlow got abuse after I went to another level. in. I don't get why people feel they've got the right to uh, the abuse people. I mean, let's be honest, 
they are Wrexham lads. They've all stood in the cop as kids growing up. So if if the fans could any, ever rally behind anybody, it should have been those two. And when there was, there was little dips, that community spirit then should have still been there because that was literally two of their own. I mean, you, you lose a couple of games and even when I lost a couple of games, I used to get, get out of our club. But you had two people who've represented the football club who are from the area, Rex and Prue Prue, been in, stood on the cop as kids with the granddads and, and, the, and the fathers, etc. So there is Wrexham as anybody, but still you're still getting shit off your local people. And that's the little bit I struggle with um, regarding some of the support of the club. And I'm not questioning all the support. The Wrexham fans are probably some of the best fans I've played, played under. And obviously there's two groups I managed under. And what they do for the football club and the passion that they have for the football club, second to none. But you are, there's a small minority who feel that they've got, the, they've got free range just to do what they want and abuse people and take it to another level. I mean, that sort of brings us on to a next point, really. I mean, this I think this is a good sort of, this is quite a wide-ranging question, but it's probably a good time to ask it. I mean, what did you think the pluses and the negatives of fan ownership were? Fan ownership, it was, look, I think it's, suit, it's good. I don't think it's suited for everyone um, because some people wouldn't be able to, to sink, they wouldn't be able to swim, they haven't got enough fans. It, it was, for me, it was the right thing for the football club. They had the ch- <clears throat> that chance was there in the middle from when Sam first took over on the back end of what was left in place. He got a little bit more build up on the back end of it being a, a good season. Attendance was always up on my season, as I said. Then, obviously, then it's all fresh impetus. Then the fans are still on a bit of an upward curve from the previous season to it. And then, obviously, then you get the wardy money coming in. That was the time then for, for the fan ownership. If it was ever going to be there, it was said. And it needed to be then because. From what I know and about the budgets, it was there then. It was ready to be part of the, the small group at the top of the table. So you say, you know what, they're, they're the big budgets. He's competing with them now. And so, yeah, fan ownership for me, it works. And it worked there. I, I can remember when I first took over and I sat there in my board meeting. I used to have a monthly board meeting. And, well, go back to when I left. It was on a Thursday night before my board meeting. And I spoke to Spence and I, I said, look, I'll come tonight. I'll do... I'll give you my bits from the, being the manager for the previous month, what, what needs to happen for the next month, and then obviously then we'll discuss about what's happened, we'll part our ways. And look, when I sat down at the table, I gave my feedback on everything from the football side the previous month, where what was meant to happen over the next month, and then just said, look, what's happened's happened. And they all understood my decision. And I shook everybody's hands at the table, the, um, the football club board, and I left the boardroom never to me. I'm not big enough, uh, not man enough not to say that. I mean, I actually had tears in my eyes as walking out of the boardroom because I enjoyed being the manager of that football club. <clears throat> and you make decisions in life and I made it. And I had to go with it, I had to back in. I, I said, I, I still don't regret it because I can't. That's a bit second of your decision. But the fan ownership model worked at Wrexham because of the fans, because of the fans. Because there's so many of them, they're so passionate about the football club. And as I spoke about it on the Robin Ryan one, um, part <clears throat> the biggest thing for me was when we didn't get paid that day when he got saved the um, house deeds etc being put in fans walking across through the trees the colliers just not around the path coming up the drive just just jumping the wall coming through the trees and throwing money in the bucket and that's when I realised I thought it is actually a special place and yeah I'm gutted that it didn't work because if it would have worked it would probably be, it'd have been under me as being the manager but no, it is where it is now. I think he got to the point he, he needed it now. On the back end of COVID, 
money going at the football club, it would have been hemorrhaging because of COVID, etc. And under a, a poor season, uh, it needed needed a fresh impetus, needed a new leadership and a new change. And hopefully, all being well, um, this season is the one. I mean, it certainly got that, didn't it? Um, let's sort of we, we will talk about that later, but let's sort of roll back a little bit. I mean, you, you've mentioned Sam, and I think you know he he only came in for a couple of months, but I think we're all massively impressed. We've had him on the on the podcast. He's a very switched on guy. We sort of think the same as you. If he'd have stayed in charge, we, we, we'd had a good chance of going up. But what did you think about the recruitment of Brian Hughes? Because for us, it was it was a little. I know he's a legend, but it was a little bit more left field. And you know, they've made good decisions with with you and and, and Sam. But there was a certain questions among the fans when when Brian came in, as, as lovely a guy as he is. Um, I think maybe they just tried to uh, <clears throat> carry that continuity of young, hungry coaches coming through. They've got the drive to lead the football club and take it forward. And as I said, I think maybe you said it earlier. Some maybe some people question the way the football will be played. Look, at the end of the day, you have to win football matches as a football manager. And look, I would love to be able to split my centre backs, play for the back, and play through the thirds and break lines for passes. But you're paying a level of a player. And you've seen it in the Premier League now, people earning 100 grand a week who can't do it. Okay? So I can't be asking my players to do something that I'm not fully convinced that they can do. So if their strength is heading the ball at the 18 yard box and being a defender, they've got to defend. That's their strength. I can't be asking somebody to be able to, you know what, I'm going to play, split you out, I'm going to go and play through the lines, break it, break line with, break line with that. Because if you imagine if you was doing that at the race course and you got, Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten thousand people doing that. And somebody just on the front foot, high press against you, turns the ball over. Could you imagine the atmosphere? And then players would crumble, would absolutely crumble. So obviously, then Sam's came in, and as you said, Sam was switched on. When I left, Sam was the only one that called me and picked my brains on the football club. Because normally, when somebody leaves a football club, they get sacked. And he wasn't. It was very similar to like obviously Dino um, sort of. Uh, then when left, he obviously transitioned straight to Moza. So sometimes when managers get cherry picked to go somewhere else, they're not. There's no ill feel, feeling towards the football club problem or anything like that. So you're not stabbing him in the back to say. So Sam called me. I had a phone call. I didn't know Sam. I had a phone call and said um, Sam Ricketts has asked, asked for your number and it, would you mind if he did you a call? He's gone in for the Wrexham job. So as you said, switched on. So yeah, watching for a couple of hours about the football club about what the club is, about passion for the football club, about how it operates. So he's one who's, as you said, he was very switched on. He didn't do the other gents before he went in there. And obviously he went in and uh, took full, developed the football club and took it forward a little bit more. Yeah, he did. So um, I mentioned this at the start. Oh, yeah, sorry. You went on about recruiting. I was off on one, wasn't I? Um, yeah, I mean, look, um, as I said, recruitment's key to whatever you do. Uh, maybe Brian just want, wanted to put, put, be open, play football, be expansive. Um, but you're playing at national league level. It's very much in your face. Work hard. You have to win the battle first. And if you win the if you win the battle after the first two minutes, the team rolls over and you get on top of them. Great. Nine times out of ten, that takes you to get to the seventieth minute in national league because you have to play it just bang, bang, bang. And if you're not up for it, you're going to get turned over. And we was always the club that was one of the biggest in the division, so we was always that scalp. 
so even even more so it's going to be now because of the finances now it's going to be huge from on the outside but even then even though we weren't the big players we were still the big club we were still a massive massive sculpt uh, the sculpt that everybody wanted because especially coming up the race course so we do something on this podcast called the fearless moment which is a moment that fills you full of most passion being involved with Wrexham. I mean, you're in a, a unique position because you play and obviously manage us. So is there any sort of one moment you can pick out? You know, we're looking at stuff like, well, obviously the FA Trophy, but there's something you mentioned earlier about, about the fans clubbing together. I mean, what sort of really sort of gets you in the, in, in, in the heart, really? Play-wise, obviously, obviously for personal point of view, would be the FA Trophy. BDF trophy, and as I said, that was a special moment to see people coming and keep the football club alive. To be a part of that, it was that was special. As a manager, my probably biggest moment, favourite game would be Tranmere away when we won one nil. Yeah. Wedge got Wedge free scores. Yeah, Wedge gets yeah. sent off after about two minutes. Oh, and, yeah, sorry, Wedge, yeah, he didn't score. And was, yeah, we, we literally played ninety six minutes with ten men all the time that we've had it on and stuff like that. So we ended up playing a game of football like really like. 98 minutes, 99 minutes. And to the belief in the squad, that typified my squad. That's why I said I was quite disappointed that I didn't get across the line to playoffs because that, that 96 minutes that I'd done, that was my squad. And that was probably the proudest, <clears throat> one of the proudest moments I had because, you know what, completely defied all the odds in a local derby. And we went there and it was just brilliant. And from Chrissy scored that goal in front of our fans and everybody just piled forward and it was just unbelievable. The scruffy goal, isn't it? Great though. <laughs> They're the better ones, though, aren't they? It's like he's he's going through bodies, he's deflected, he's gone in top corner. I mean, he wants to watch one going top corner from about forty-five yards. That's easy, isn't it? Yeah, but it was a good performance, wasn't it? Despite the sending off, it kind of galvanised them further. I think. Yeah, as I said he typified the group, the togetherness at the yards, and he said galvanised us. And you know, when you look at points, and you think, no, oh, what well, it can go against you, but there was a, there was points that didn't ever fancy to go against us, and. It was it, when you people go on about the start of play. When we went one 0 up, if we went one up after the first minute, I knew the game was done. I knew from being on the side of the pitch, the game was done. Look, I know the reasons why you only ever finished one 0 from my coaching point of view, managerial point of view. The reasons were, but look, I'd, I'd love to have been playing a lot higher up the pitch, but we didn't. The players didn't. They didn't have the legs to be able to do it. So. The, as I said, what my players were good at was what they were, a good solid unit and defended for their lives. And I say we, I say we didn't scrape one nils, we were comfortable one nil wins. Before I bring um, uh, Liam in, uh, just in terms of that Tranmere game, you mentioned local derby. Do you, with games like that, whether it's Tranmere, whether it's Chester, do you always tailor your team talk differently? Do you always, do you always sort of make it known to the players? <laughs> Yeah, yeah just, there's bits. There's bits. Look, right. I, kept, I tapped into it. I had Joey, I, I had Joey come in the changing room. I had Bryn Law make um, a video for me um, about what it means. So people, so the players that come in, if they don't fully know what, what it's about, I wanted it highlighted so they know they know what it's about representing this football club. And uh, we we were up there in North Wales on our own. And we always felt it was a siege mentality. Everybody's against us. So like. You got far from being over the border into Chester, and it's, it's one's a city. Well, both cities now technically, <laughs> technically on it. And uh, but then you look at it and you think, oh, well, that one, the Tony Wrexham is, it's 
the football club's focal. It's all about the football club. It's pivotal to the town. And that's why everybody's so passionate about it. And that my, that my players knew that. And I made them understand that what an honour it was to represent that football club. And that's that's what they had to carry in on that badge and that name on the chest and the name on the top of the shirt at the back. They had to represent that football club and give it everything. Great. Right, so we're fast forwarding now, Dean, to your second spell with the club. Um, I think we're talking roughly October 2019. For whatever reason, things haven't worked out um, for Brian Hughes. When did you first get an indication that a return could be on the cards? And given what you've um, discussed with us previously about some of the reaction to your departure, did you have any reservations about coming back? Yeah, of course, there's obviously reservations. It's something in your mind. And you think, you know what, you're going to go back into a shitstorm, you're going to get a, a hell of a lot of abuse. And questions again, why, why would you do it? Why do this, etc. But you know what, you have to have broad enough shoulders. And, and I had to carry that. And it was somewhere I, had to, I, I was confident that I could come in and turn it around and uh, get people back on side. Look, I didn't know anything was coming up. It wasn't like everybody else. I, I read about it. I heard about it on social media that previous manager uh, Yasser had been released and um, yeah so when it became available it was something I thought you know what I'd like to go back I'll put my name in the hat and I think if I hadn't left on the terms that I did and if I'd gone about it completely the wrong way that I wouldn't even got invited to the table to have a sit down and have a conversation about it and yeah so I think that's, that was the biggest thing that got me the opportunity to be able to come back and, and state, state a case where I should come back. And as I said, I've done everything properly. Warsaw conducted itself properly. Um, so, yeah, so when it was available, I reached out to Spencer and it was all done professionally. There was no no friendship or anything like that, a bit of, of being in it or anything like that. It was all done correctly. And uh, we went from that. And then I got invited over to the race course for a conversation and an interview. So you, when you came in, we were pretty low down in the table I seem to think it was roughly around um 20th and you've talked before about how you were quite involved in the the budget process previously what was your perception when you came back in I mean I believe Brian Hughes had probably one of the larger budgets that we've had in this league did you know without hammering the man himself I mean did you, did you think that it had been spent wisely and the question is that I'm not in a situation where I can win in this situation by giving an answer, is it? Well, more well, more broadly then, you could just sort of take an overall view of it and you go in into the change room, you look at the situation, what are your some of your immediate thoughts just on the team that you've inherited and you know the general state of play at the club. I'd have fancied myself to get promoted on that budget easily. On that budget, I would have fancied myself to get promoted on the And it was, yeah. If I'd been given that budget in any one of my seasons, if I had to finish top of the league and got promoted, I'd have gone as far as to say, you deserve, I'd have deserved to get the sack. That's, that's about myself, not anybody else. That's all I'm saying about that. Yeah. And just looking at the um, personnel when you came in, were were there players that you felt were talented, but you know there wasn't enough being got out of them, or what was your assessment of the situation? Look, I still had players in that change room who were my my players. Who I'd still had relationships, even though I'd left. 
um, we'd form that relationship that the club would reach out to me if they needed advice or just conversation about stuff, etc. Look, I'm not playing. If I go and ask the manager this, do you think what kind of you're in your shoes? What would you say? Them kind of conversations I, I I've had with players and still have with players that I've worked with. Um, so what was in there was still a majority of my main players. So it was quite easy for me to go in and get to a bottom, get to the bottom of a lot of things because it was my captain was still in there. Players that I played with, um, as in Cara, I could get to the bottom of everything fairly, fairly quickly. And it wasn't a good feeling in there. It, it wasn't a great change of room. Um, from what I'd left, and I'd imagine what Sam had as well, it was a shadow of itself. And that goes with um, poor performances, defeats. So it's not the manager's fault, whoever's in charge. You could have anybody in charge of the football club. And if you're not winning football matches and players go within themselves and then start deflecting, it comes everybody else's um, fault. So it's not just the manager's fault, it's, it's everybody's fault. It's a collective. You, one thing I've always believed in, it's, it's a wee culture, and that was something I spoke about the first time. It's not me and the players, it was me, the players, the board, everybody's in this together. And that's what I built the first time, and that's what I had to try and build again the second time. It was going to be hard because, look, for the size of the football club to hit bottom, rock bottom in the National League, I can remember getting hooked in on Sunday morning with the board and absolute faces and jaws on the floor. Like, this football club of how big it is and it's had great days out in Europe. He's now sat rock bottom in the National League. I was confident we wasn't going to finish there and it got to the January when I started adding a few of my own players and getting my own recruitment, getting my own bodies in there. I know people still say, oh, COVID, this, COVID, that, but the stats say it from when I took over in January to when the season curtailed, that group of players, when I had my own players in there and come to January window closing, my points return tally would have put us 12th in the league. So we wouldn't have got relegated. Yeah, I mean, that must have been a strange period for you. I mean, even more so than before you come in trying to stabilise things. And then all of a sudden, probably one of the most strangest periods any of us can remember when COVID hits. Um, was there any sort of trepidation in, I guess it's the unknown for everyone really, isn't it? Yeah, it was just strange. It was like, you're asking questions, are you going to be playing, what's happening? Like, yeah. It was, it was, it's unheard of, isn't it? It's unheard of. I mean, you look at that early there, that part of it, like, you know I mean? You, you, you've been let out your house for an hour to have a walk and to get exercise. And you'd, you'd walk, I mean, where I live in Cheshire, I live not far from the river and it's five minute walk there. And then you'd be walking there and like, you see people down paths stopping and walking, turning the back on you and shit like that. It's unheard of what we went through. And that's just general life. And even in any work or business in football, it was just, absolutely strange and it was just like really really strange times for operating and like you just don't know what's going to happen you, you know what I mean the games will get called off left right and centre and then you get a phone call on Friday game's off boy you got a couple of Kobe cases and you're just like shit and all of a sudden you just got binned off What was your um, approach then after things got called off did that give you a bit of time to try and rebuild things or were there a lot of financial sort of aspects of it to run through as well no, that gave me opportunity. That did, and that's some. I sat down with Spencer, and we built something. We went with a different strategy, and got somebody else in on the outside, a Wrexham fan who come in, who does a lot for businesses, and he gave an input a bit different to away from football. He gave me some different ideas and helped me get a lot from out my head onto paper and different put a different model in place and. 
it was good. I enjoyed that. And we had like weekly Zoom calls, however that, and it was all about getting the right recruitment, putting a process in place, getting the right culture, getting the right recruitment, and then just building something, a model to say, right, this is how we're going to operate this season. And I wasn't far off. I moved just outside the lines of it. Some of the bits I didn't adhere to because I thought, you know what, it's not the time for this. Bits completely stuck with it. But it was a, it was different, and it was different from how I played the first time. So I got a lot, I put a lot more player ownership in it this time. Uh, instead of me coming in saying it's going to be this, there's a lot more questions, and it was the buying of the players to get the right culture. And at the course of the season, <laughs> it become the rod that you whack them across the arse with. Because if they didn't turn up and they didn't do this or didn't do that, well, like I said, and we sat there and we put this in place. It's there on the wall. There are your words on the wall, what you're going to do, what you're going to offer. Monday to Friday, then Saturday does this as well. If you don't do that, why did you say it? So instead of me just coming in ranting, or any manager going ranting and raving, they had a capability for it a lot more than I'd done the first time. And I really enjoyed that side, uh, building that. And as I said, uh, spent a lot of time with um, <clears throat> Spencer and, and Colin for the course of summer building all up towards it. And, yeah, it, it, it worked for us. That was something that I'd learned new that season. So looking to the, um, was it well roughly around summer, was it thinking players like Kelleher, Vassell, Ponticelli and Thomas coming in, did you think feel pretty confident about the promotion push for the next season? Yeah, look, I mean, we were quite late because, the, as you go about the fan ownership, the budget was late because they couldn't commit, couldn't commit, could not commit to anything. Uh, look, there's players now that I've represented the football club in the last year and a half that I'd spoke to two years ago that Wrexham have gone on board. And I'd, I hadn't spoken to the player directly, I spoke with his agent, and he was like, right, okay, he's got something on the table. I said, look, I'm interested, but if he's got something on the table, I said, I'm not ready to put it on the table. I said, and if that offers on the concrete on the table, with how tough things are now and uncertainty in life and etc. I can't say to you, turn it down because I'll have something. I said, because I don't know, because if the season doesn't start or we don't get concrete dates started, I ain't getting a budget. I said, because literally all I'm operating on now is we're all on furlough. We're not getting top top and the players that are out of contract now haven't been, I ain't getting paid um, after the, the, the period of when the, the government paying the vast majority of all the furlough. So obviously we lost that player. He went somewhere else um, on the back end of that. And then it was just a case of me just waiting. I had conversations with Coventry about JP, um, spoke with them all through the summer and said, look, again, definitely interested. We'd like to sign him. We want to sign him. Um, but I can't guarantee that we can sign him because I don't know what we've got actually yet to do. And Coventry were really good about it. He'd been there a long time, had a few loans, failed, done well for us the first time when he came in the previous season. So that they were open to that and to give the lad the opportunity now to go and kick on and get his career on track. Um, yeah, so I was confident. I knew it was going to be a slow burner because it was such a vast changeover in the squad. And he was, I think, I knew, what did I keep? I held on to about four, about five, six max. So I knew that what came in had to be coming in to go into the starting eleven. The vast majority had to go into the starting eleven also. That again I'd have the nucleus of a team that's underachieved from the previous season. Uh, from the previous season, sorry. Yeah, so if we're going from from then there being sort of on the larger 
budgets. Where would you say we were that following season? Because I'm I'm just going to purely guess because of the ownership model and because of COVID things <laughs> were not at the same level. Nowhere near. Nowhere near. And people might say it's sour grapes after the Dagenham game. Uh, what I said, there's no sour grapes in it. I was stating the obvious there. What I went with that season was not in the top 14, 15 teams in the division. And I know an agent obviously watched the game, etc., and spoke to him the following week. And he was like, Go on, I need to know this. Like, I've still got really well this agent. I've dealt with him. I signed one of his players, and he'd been one of my best signings under my managerial career. And I told him, and he started laughing. And he was like, He told me a team, I'm not going to name them. Uh, it's a part time team in London from our level. He was like that. Even they had more money than you. Seemed like Maid- Maidenhead, perhaps. <laughs> That's again, that's a journalist. <laughs> so he said that to me. Obviously, he knew somebody in at the club and who he dealt with, and he said he knew what their budget was. Look, yeah. we, we were. I had a 200 grand, right? More than Altrincham. And that's me not being disrespectful to Altrincham, but Altrincham's Phil does an unbelievable job there, and he has done. But when you're looking at Altrincham compared to the size of the football club, what I was in charge of and we were big in everything in name following stadium floodlights but it wasn't big in money and that was one thing that the first time I asked the board about it um, then could we could we put it out and say look this and that and it was like no because there's an expectation for this football club because I going forward, if we put it out there, it might be just galvanise everybody again and just say, like, we're in this together, so it ain't always going to be great, ain't always going to be pretty, but we've got tin apps on and we're going to fight and represent this football club as good as we can. But I was told no. So that was fine. So I had no issues with it. So when I went in for the COVID season and got told the budget, and then I just got said, do the best you can. <laughs> because they knew how bad it was. And look, as I said, it was a slow burner. Uh, I managed it as good as I can. Uh, what I had in my favourite was, look, there was a few players, squads had been trimmed, a lot of players, were cut, clubs were cutting down numbers because, again, Colby was buying everybody. Um, so there was a few players who'd been left hanging, had promise of contracts, then retracted right at the last second because somebody else was going to do it a little bit cheaper or whatever reason, or the could feel they could get better for the, the money that was going to pay that club. So then when it comes to that, so... The, the one or two that turned up late, they had other options. So we ended up getting them because obviously them options kind of like pulled, pulled away from them. So like it was also get, competing against somebody who was like probably the same kind of money that I was offering them. But I then could lean on, look what you're coming to play at. Where are you going to be playing every single week? You're going to take five to a thousand fans away. 500 if we're doing bang average or if, we, if we're doing, we thought they're flying, you're having over a thousand. We never got to do that. Because no one ever got allowed back in the stadium, but I got to lean back on them and put the capability of what a football club is, you know, how big it is. So that was the little bit that I could draw on from the from the from the club. And going like based on that, how how did you feel about some of the sort of criticism of the style of play? You know, people would say things like, you know, Keats ball or whatever. But given the the context you've just given there of how much money you had, how did that make you feel? So. Right, they're going about, I don't know what Keats Ball So The first season they had a model for the one nils, didn't they? So when we're winning 5-4 or we're winning 4-3, basically you can't win, can you? So I don't get, this, this is something I don't get. So I'll ask you as a question then. 
as Wrexham fans, when has been the best football that you've ever played? Because from my, I'd say nine years, my association with the football club as player and manager, I've not seen any unbelievable football. Yes, we'll have that one season. We'll have that one season with Gary Mills, but I just gave a few players there who could go out there and play, conduct a game themselves. The last time I watched decent football for Wrexham was when I played against them. You had Daz and Rooster, you had players, and you were playing League One. So I don't get where these we should be playing unbelievable football. We are, we are, and we are at national league. You've got to win the right now to win a football match. I mean, Dean Saunders is. Squad, it was still quite up and out in football, wasn't it? Well, yeah, I said I said this under Robin Ryan, and not disrespecting Mozart or Dino, bro played in it. I know what we were about, and I said then that was the most long ball team I'd ever played in my career. Big diags up to Danny Wright or Mozart, midfield three, we just arrived every single second ball. We played in the final third, and we bullied teams, we intimidated teams, got two places. So I don't know where the, where this this. Um, we should be playing unbelievable football, should be coming from. Maybe when you, you've gone about um, Brian's recruitment, maybe I think maybe Brian was told or advised to get away from this in-your-face kind of football and he's tried to have maybe look and be a little bit more expansive, a bit more controlled. And one or two players didn't perform for him. Um, there's no denying that because it was, there was some players in that change room and you think, oh, well, they've been at a good level and they should be performing a lot better than that, that they are. But when you're in the National League, if you're not prepared to turn up and give absolutely everything first and for, foremost, you can be technically the best player in the world, the best pa- not at that level, the best player, um, passer, technically an unbelievable player. But if you're not going to put your balls on the line first and foremost and then right, you're irrelevant to the, to the to the team because you're not you're not uh, contributing to what, what what it's about. I think it probably says it all that last season. Like when it's sort of everything unlocked for us was when we signed Ollie Palmer, who is a player who can take those sort of long balls down and, and play with them, doesn't it? Yeah, look, I've not seen much. I've only seen the games that are on TV, as you spoke about. Um, now they're in a position where they can, they can pay money, which is absolutely ridiculous. And you can get players like that and you can entice them down because but they'll be able to entice even more down because you get projects over the years in each season there's something and it's now as a thingy players in League One or maybe the Championship will be interesting in because they'll know they'll get a couple of year contract they'll get really good salaries and it's not going to go bust it's not going to go bust so you know you're going to be guaranteed it's like the player that I spoke about earlier um, when I lost out the, the other centre back I spoke to I would never ever <clears throat> bullshit a player and I got four got this player, met him many, many times, and he said to me, Right, someone's coming for me. Put something on the table, and it wasn't even at national league level. Right? It was below us at the time. And I went, Right, go on then. He said, I know for all the football reasons I should be coming to play for you. He said, Financially, this is what they've done. And I just said to him, Right, I'll speak to you now as a as a person. Obviously, you're a young man. But he told me <clears throat> you're going to be starting, looking to start a family very soon. You've got a mortgage in place that you're about to go through, etc. When he told me the deal, my exact word was, was for him, get in my car, I'll drive you to that club now and I'll sign it. I said, because you can't turn that down. 
you can't turn that down. I said, as much as I'd love to be able to say to you, I want to work with you, I want to be my football club, you cannot turn that offer down. So that's what you're up against. And now, we was always up against that. Now the club is that. The club is that. So the recruitment thing now for the football club is it has to be even more spot on for me because you cannot get ridiculously high-paid players in a changing room, not always playing, before you know it becomes an issue. It becomes an issue. So I'm sure Phil will manage that and it'll be a good season. Who was the player, Dean? It, look, is it... <laughs> if you know the National League, it's not. It's pretty obvious, isn't it? Take Sean and Manio, who's been one of the other best centre-backs in the National League. Who's, who's our National League resident, Gilpin? He'll know out of them all, living down there. Well, he, went of, he went lower than National League. Yeah. This is going to make For that one season, my first season. Right. It's going to have to be filed or someone like that. Is it, it McNulty? No. No. God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love McNulty. What <laughs> um, would you want guesses? Oh shit! The pressure's on. This is this is not was this. It wasn't supposed to turn out like this. Well, yeah. now we're on the spot, aren't we? <laughs> I kind of wish I had nasted it, but I'm glad I did. Oh, um, I wish I had Yeah, well, come on, we've got two more cracks at this, or, or we're gonna we're gonna like. I mean, the, the lad who went to file was Cross uh, Crossdale. Now he was a more midfielder. No, no, no. Well, I've had mine. Liam, you're up. I went, I went with Nolte. I've, I've fluffed my chance. No, <laughs> you can't have Sanabaro. No. I'll give you a clue. He has, oh. a, he has a name, forename, as same as one of you lot. Oh, Barry Gilpin. <laughs> <laughs> but that's surname, isn't it? I said forename. Oh, right. Liam Hogan. Oh, oh, there we are. There we oh, yeah. are. Bloody bag here. No comment. No comments on that. <laughs> ah, another thing. While we're talking about this, I know you were saying that you wanted the player who you couldn't get in your first season because they went somewhere else. It's not Paul Mullin, is it? When the second season? When, yeah, yeah. Second, yeah. your second spell. You said you wanted. No, no, no. Wanted, that was. You want, look, I spoke to Paul Mullin. Hmm. I spoke to Paul. But he's another. He's another one. Look, what I liked about Paul Mullin, obviously, Jay spoke. I knew him because I watched his clips. And seen bits of him, obviously, when he played against Tramier, managed against Tramier and that. And you could see he was a finisher. But he wasn't getting consistent games, was he? Obviously, you had Cookie in front of him and you had... Um, oh, what's his name? Kid, it went to Ipswich eventually. It was Norwood. Yes, sorry, Norwood. And um, so you could see when he came in, he'd always done well. So I spoke to uh, uh, Moles at the end of that season, uh, the first beginning of the COVID season. And yeah. Jay Poskey's number onto, him, onto me and that and said... Have a chat with him. He said, I think he's a good signing for us. And I was like, yeah, yes. So we had a conversation. I said, look, I'd, I'd like to bring you into the football club. Put together what I could, the best I could, because I just thought, you know what? I've made little bits of cutbacks here and there and everywhere. And I just thought, I've got a little tiny bit. I'll put it to him as the main centre forward. And we had an honest and frank conversation. And it wasn't about finances for him. He just said, it's not a bad offer. He said, and said I'll be honest with you, it's not far off from what I'm on. And I knew that because all the checks that I'd done, I managed to find out what he was on. So, and he just said, look, I've got one or two teams interested in the league. I'd like to try and stay in the league if I could. And again, players, if players are honest with me, I'll be there. I said, look, I appreciate that. 
I've always advised players to play as high as they can, as long as they can. Unless Dave Rexon comes in for you now and offers you a ridiculous down for your contract, then it's worth dropping down. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you said, I said, look, have a week. That's the max I can give you because I need to go elsewhere. So I need to get some, um, I need to get players in place for, for the club. And some players don't call you back. I didn't speak to an agent, nothing like that. He was, he was a man about it. Uh, he said, I ain't got an agent to do it myself. And I, was, and I said, right, give us a week. I said, uh, I'll give you a week then. He said, right, no. So I didn't lean on him through the week, left him to it, and he called me back. Now, I've got a lot of time for that because some players don't, you know, oh, speak to me, agent. I don't want to talk about it. Speak to me, agent. Or they, just, they won't call you back. They'll, you'll read that sign somewhere. And then you'd call them and say, can I at least be a man about it? Give me a ring back and have a conversation. Or why did you do it kind of thing? They still won't answer, answer to you. He called me back and he just said, look, I've got a league team to put some on the table. And he went, it's not loads more than yours. Um, he said, but I want to, I want to try and stay in the league. I have the utmost respect for somebody who's, who's up front about it and speaks the truth. And he did. And look, the rest is history. And he's gone down to Cambridge and had an unbelievable season. And then he's ended up, he's in, finally he's ended up here just two years too late for me. <laughs> so no, it wasn't Moles. It was Jake Hyde. He went to Halifax instead. Oh, to his age. I, sp- I had a. I had a slight reservation about it, and this is why I think at the back of my mind, um, I said to the agent, look, I can't, fully, I couldn't commit to nothing. There was nothing I could do financially, I couldn't put anything in, in place. The agent said he'd, he'd like to come and play at the football club because the size of the football club. I said, well, I can't put nothing in place at the moment. <clears throat> I'd like to sign him, but he's a good player. He scores goals at a level. But I knew with a reduced budget I was going with, I just could go with players that no one could get 90% of a season out of. And I don't think Jake, he doesn't play, he doesn't. He wouldn't have given me the stats and the data I needed to, to get out on the pitch week in, week out. He, he, for whatever reason, he, he seems to get one or two little niggles. Yeah, yeah. But he, he, I would, when, I was, when he was signing for, really good signing, really good signing for the club. That. So, take us to... Almost, almost present day. Um, the Hollywood Reds take over. Um, I think Spencer went on to say, you know, it was people of significant um, media interest that their net worth is through the roof, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that got everybody's tongues wagging. You know, there was a big theory it was going to be Russell Crowe because of his very tenuous link with his with his, uh, his grandfather from Wrexham or something. When did you first um, hear about the takeover and? Did you did what was the speculation with yourself and the rest of the squad as to who it might have been? I knew about it early on, if I'm honest. Um, Spencer, Spencer, he's he keeps you informed. Always kept me informed. Um, he told me in the in the preseason, said we've had a tentative inquiry, blah blah blah. Um, he said, look, we've had loads of these and nothing's ever came from, etc. Over the years, uh, so yeah, I knew I knew bits and pieces. He never. One thing about Spencer, he's an ultimate, ultimate professional, and he didn't tell me who it was. He he told me who it was half an hour before it broke, and I knew on the Saturday. So we played Telford for pre-season on the race course, and he called me. I've got to tell you, because if you come in at half-time or you read about it, it's broke. And I was like, Spencer, I knew Saturday. I said, some, not somebody on my staff, coaching staff, somebody who works in the football club, said to me at the weekend, have you heard who the new, who, who, who they are? And I was like, no, 
they showed me a picture and told them, I said, it leaked from somewhere else on the board. That's everything does at the club, didn't it? That's, that was my biggest gripe with the trust. Yeah. It, it leaked, everything leaked. And we couldn't find out. And you know what? Obviously, I know it wasn't myself, but I'm 100% sure I know for a fact it wasn't Spencer. You know what I mean? So for somewhere, some, somebody just used to love chatting and leaking stuff, and it used to piss me right off. About players and I don't look. I've got friends who are Wrexham, Wrexham fans, Wrexham lads through through Wrexham fans, and I, I'm still in touch with them now. And <clears throat> they used, he used to text me like, "Oh, Link so and so and all that," but I wouldn't tell him, even though we had that thing. He, he never probed me on anything or anything like that. So if if I wanted to speak, I'd speak and he'd, he'd, he'd listen. And but I'd never give up anything until he was done. And uh, he'd tell me this, and I'd be like. Fucking hell, again. Again. <laughs> so, that, that was my biggest gripe with the trust ownership. I'm just like, somebody in there cannot hold their own water. Um, <laughs> but no, that, that was that. And obviously then, as I said, Spencer didn't tell me. I knew half an hour before everybody else knew. We knew broke on that Tuesday night. And I was like, Spencer, I knew Saturday. <laughs> and he went, what do you mean? I went, so-and-so went, <clears throat> it came out. So-and-so told me. And he was like, bloody hell, again. So, yeah, I knew half an hour before. Didn't tell the players because obviously we got pre-season game, and then I had a conversation with the players after. Uh, obviously, the players knew everything that was happening, but we didn't know names. And look, with all respect to Rob, I didn't even know I didn't know who Rob was. Didn't have a clue who he was. And like when I got told, obviously I knew who Ryan Reynolds was. And he told me about Rob, I was like, show me a picture. And he was like, never seen him in my life. So I never seen him in my life. I said, what's he doing? He's like, oh, blah blah blah. Never seen it. <clears throat> Never seen it. No, that's with really the utmost respect to him. Yeah. Did not have a clue who he was. Have you seen it since? No. <laughs> Fair enough. No. Personal now, I never want to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I've seen obviously clips of it, obviously gifts and what people have done and all that. Um, I don't watch loads of um, sitcoms or anything like that. And I'm more of a documentary uh, person and uh, films. When, when you when you when you you obviously got told about the Ryan Reynolds thing, what what, what was your, what was your initial thought that like you got to be taking the piss out of him? Yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I spoke to him that, um, just after that, and I can remember thinking to myself, I mean, how of how the fuck does a kid off a council estate <laughs> to to you know what I mean? I just about can form a conversation, a sentence on me, and I'm just thinking to myself, how do you speak to two people that are like that like going to be American people who ain't really going to understand what I'm going to be saying. My accent's a little bit of black country left in it, scattered with everything from all around the country. And I'm thinking to myself, what do I do here? What do I actually do? And I'm, I'm sat, um, <clears throat> I guess, obviously, Spencer calls me. There's going to be a conference call in half an hour. And I'm like, right, okay. Yeah, you're going to speak to Robin, right? I'm like, all oh, right, am I? So I'm sat there at my girlfriend's house, and I'm like... <clears throat> I'm like to, to her, I'm gonna have to go upstairs over in the back room. She's like, well, so I've got to speak to Rob and Ryan. And she's like, all right. And she's oblivious to to, to football. She'd never seen a football match. But I'll tell you a story about her in a minute, driving past the ground. She had to go to work in Wrexham. And she obviously, we'd been together a fair bit and she didn't even know anything about football, never been to one of the games and that. She, ne- <clears throat> she drove past the stadium and she, had to go, she got appointed to go and do something in Wrexham for work. She obviously just dropped in the mold road and she come back that night. She's like, ah, 
it's quite a big stadium, isn't it? Like your club's gone. I was like, what do you mean? She went, I drove past it there. I had to come straight to Wrexham. I was like, I was like, did you think of it? She went, I didn't really envisage it to be that big. She went, it's like massive, isn't it? I was like, <laughs> so it's yeah. So, likes, mate. Was, yeah, well, she commented on that. She went, like, it's big stand, but the footlights are even bigger. And then, <laughs> So like I said, I like I said to said to Dom, I was like, look, I've got to go have a conversation, obviously with these, like for half an hour. And she's like, all right then. So phone rings. Um, I think it was I can't remember whose PA it was. He was obviously it was either Rob or Ryan's. And I'm still thinking to myself, how am I going to have this conversation? <laughs> I'm just going to I'm just going to wing it. And uh, so yeah, Rob came on about five seconds first. Uh, introduced himself and then Ryan came on and then the light Ryan was just like so how was your first day and I'm like I just thought fuck it I went I went I'm not gonna lie it's been a bit fucking mental because of you two I said normally I deal I deal with little rich from the leader I said I've had every fucking throw a microphone in my face and everybody want to speak to me I said so yeah it's been a little bit crazy so they just started laughing and stuff like that and look they were down to earth he was an easy conversation. Obviously, spoke about things. Uh, they just said, "Look, um, we're here to assist if we can and go forward and secure the football club and and hopefully help everybody take the football club forward." And obviously, we spoke regarding documentary uh, about what the plans was with that and and their feelings towards it and what it means to the football club. So yeah, as I said, that was the one conversation, and I'd had. Two, two more conversations with them before the end of the season that was it yeah. then the second one was just after the full, announce, full announcement of the takeover and it all gone through they've done a Zoom call with obviously with all the staff Thank you for listening for, to part one of our interview with Dean Keats. Loads more uh, interesting stuff to come next week. In fact, I think the second half is the best, so sorry about that. But Tim, you've got a new feature for us. Well, yes, of sorts. Um, harking back to our, our halcyon days of mighty and shitey heroes, we thought we'd come back with a vengeance and have a kind of third instalment, if you like, Um we were time with the idea of a best loan 11, but maybe we'll come to that another day. But in light of, of uh, Phil Parkinson's immortal lines on the documentary of um, his players being a bunch of fanny in footballers, we thought, why don't we look at um, which players we should nominate for a, a best um, Wrexham fanny 11? Um, definition of fanny in this respect is somebody who's maybe a bit not exactly the bravest on the ball, uh, shies away from it, you know, kind of that vibe, really. Um, not somebody who's a shithouse, but somebody that we just thought, Christ, scared of his own shadow. So that's basically what we're going to go with. What we're gonna so try. We're, we're basically going to call out people for being soft. Uh, that, that, that's your words, not mine. Never said that. I never said that. I would never <laughs> do something. We're, we're merely... Casting... Would you say? It's, it's the opposite of shithouse, I think, is the... Uh... Is 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 a good sort of. Or is it the opposite of heart? I want to get my make sure I know what I'm talking about here. Is it the opposite of shit house or the opposite of hard nut? Because mm. they're different things. How about a shit house opposite of a shit house hard nut? Okay, fine. We're merely casting a critical historical eye. The opposite of a hard house. Gotcha. Yeah. Right. Okay, Tim. Why don't you go first with your nomination? I have no idea what I'm going to say. 
<laughs> I am going to plump for um, a certain Xavi Valero. I can't remember his full name. It was some sort of Vincent, Vicente something. I don't know. But Spanish keeper arrived. Soft name. Yeah, well, you said it, not me. And um, he arrived. Dennis Smith saw videos of him. He needed a keeper quickly after an injury to Andy Dibble. Chucked him into the first team. Conceded two against Peterborough. Two-all draw. Then we lost 5-1 at home to Tramir. Then he played his third and final league game for us at Chesterfield. He was hooked at half-time because he was, he was literally scared of his own shadow. He couldn't come for the ball. He came out for a, a free kick, completely missed it. They headed the, the ball into the net. Hooked him at half-time, having had discussions with Dennis Lawrence and Steve Roberts. He said, this guy, we, we, can't, we can't work with him. He's clueless. Um, and he was, unfortunately. And he was replaced by Michael Jones, never to be seen again. So as, as much as he had a, a decent coaching career, Zavi Valera, for my liking, gets my nomination for our fanny goalkeeper because, yeah, for that reason, he, he's supposed to be brave as a goalkeeper and he wasn't. I'm going to go for a lesser-spotted loan signing, Matt Baker. Came in, Dennis Smith, um, had bleach blonde hair, which he sort of spiked weirdly, uh, used a lot of gel for 2004. I, I mean, I don't know if that was a thing then. But I think that the key thing about him is he never really seemed to fill his, his goalkeeping jersey and always looked massive on him. And I've just like done Matt Baker, football Wrexham, and the first image in Google is him dropping a ball, um, which I think sort of, sort of sums him up a little bit. Came from Hereford, wasn't particularly imposing, seemed a nice fella, uh, didn't really work out for him. He's now a Tory, now a quite well-known Tory, so I'm just going to leave it there. <laughs> so my nomination for the Fanny, Fanny goalkeeper, is Mr Christian Rogers. Uh, so in the first season I supported Wrexham, we had a pretty reliable goalkeeper in Kevin Dearden, albeit he liked the pies a bit, but he was pretty solid. Um, but whenever he wasn't playing, we had Christian Rogers in goal. And that was my first experience of a goalkeeper who basically made you need a poo every time he came for the ball. Uh, he often punched it out. His kicking was pretty iffy. Uh, yeah, just didn't instill confidence whatsoever. So for that reason, my fanny, fanny footballer nomination goes to Christian Rogers. Can you stop saying that word? <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm, I've just googled Matt Baker Tory, and I can't find any any. any sort I mean, of... This is not a political uh, podcast anyway. So yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I'm not sure I've got a nomination. I'm going to nominate. Uh, Anthony Williams, because he helped take us down to the conference. And, you know, a real hard nut just wouldn't have allowed that to happen because he didn't kneecap the opposing strikers. Yeah, that's that's how it works. Yeah, <laughs> any, team, any team that would escape relegation uh, actually uh, survived that on a couple of kneecappings. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Let's right. get this straight. Reese does not like or advocate the use of the word fanny, but he does advocate... And extreme violence to opposing players. Like I don't that. Know, it's, it's, it's just a, mm, indeed right. Any 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 immediate thoughts of who who is um, the most deserving of these four? Christian Rogers. Um, I mean, I, I, I like Christian. He's a really nice lad, but I always thought he needed to be a bit madder. He was too nice to be a keeper. He needed to <laughs> shave his hair. He needed to tattoo me on his forehead and just go out and absolutely kneecap people. Reese, if that's what you want, you want kneecappings, then, then 
Chris, uh, that's what Chris I needed. Was it not calling for it, just saying that is, you know, a one way of staying up. Right. Christian was a really nice fella, uh, but but goalkeepers, by their very definition, are nuts. And Christian isn't nuts. Christian should have been a tennis player or something. He was an athlete, but wasn't wasn't yeah you know, wasn't just cut out to be a keeper. I don't think. Songs of praise presenter. I'd have him down as, to be honest, something like that. Um, if you oh. look at Christi- Christian Rogers with a kicking cuff. For those who are not familiar with him, um, yeah, but he didn't kick anyone. So that was that was yeah, redundant. There's the that? irony. There's the irony. Yeah. Okay, so Christian Rogers makes his way into our 11. Please do email in. Which 11 was that? Uh, uh, not hard nuts 11. Uh, I, I, like, I like the way you and uh, me, me and Liam didn't even get, get a say on who should go. Just that <laughs> Let's cut this discussion short and just play I, it. Andy's word is the law. Okay. And oh, great. To that extent, Christian Rogers goes in. Sorry. I mean, it. Liam doesn't need a vote on it because it's Liam's bloody choice. Well, all right, yeah, all right. Granted. So you were already outvoted. Christian Rogers is in. Nice fella. Yeah. Not not nuts enough to be a keeper. Right, yeah, and that's it for this week's podcast because we are not doing uh, predictions because we've been is that so. Because you've not done your bloody forfeit. I've not. I haven't been given a forfeit to do. Oh, we keep coming up with a forfeit and then we keep forgetting to listen to those. He's yeah, got to go and Christian Rogers. Yeah. Well, wasn't the, wasn't the last one that I had to? I can't remember. But it was some grotesque punishment. Dear, dear listeners, if you come up with suggestions for an appropriate uh, newly married Reese forfeit from last season, please suggest it to us. Hashtag Reese forfeit. So uh, so we know, um, and then we can get an idea of it. Then we'll come up. We'll we'll, we'll choose the best one. Fair enough. There we go. Uh, Right, thank you so much for listening, everyone. And there'll be more next week from our interview with Dean Keats. I hope you can look forward to that. And we'll see you all soon. See ya. Ta-da.